Our scripture reading this morning comes from Revelation chapter 20. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. I'll read the other portion later. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night, forever and ever. You pray with me. Father, we ask this morning that you would bless not simply the reading and the hearing, but that you would bless us with a willingness to heed the things that we hear here to be comforted by them and convinced of them, convicted. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Augustine, Luther, Kuiper, A.W. Pink, J.I. Packer, R.C. Sproul, they would all be in the camp of the uh, millennialists. Uh, John Owens, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Hodge, many of the Puritans, modern-day Reconstructionists, theonomists, they would all be in the camp of the post-millennialists. Irenaeus, Spurgeon, Francis Schaeffer, D.A. Carson, we could put them into the camp of a classic premillennialist. Tim LaHaye, who wrote the Left Behind book, and many today, probably the predominant view today, we could put into the camp of dispensational premillennialists. We come to this passage on the millennium, and there are all of these faithful uh, believers, wise and learned people throughout all of history who've held different views on this, and it presents us with sort of a real Gordian knot of sorts. If you don't know what a Gordian knot is, it's uh, from a myth where Alexander the Great was conquering through the earth, and he came to an ox cart tied up uh, in his conquering journeys, and uh, they had not been able to untie it. 
And so the, the myth was whoever could untie it would conquer and rule all of Asia Minor. So uh, in, in sort of a Captain America moment, you remember uh, when Captain Steve Rogers uh, in the flagpole scene, if you know that, uh, you'll know what I'm talking about here. In one of these moments of genius, Alexander the Great just took out his sword and cut the knot off and uh, thus released the ox cart and conquered all of Asia Minor. But the, the thought was that nobody could undo it. We come to this idea today where nobody can sort of undo this, this thing, this question on the millennium. Some of us uh, simply throw our hands in the air and say, I'll be a pan-millennialist. It will all pan out, and I don't want to know how. But this passage speaks of this millennium, this reign of Christ, and we're going to look at it today. Uh, let me give you a very short Cliff Notes version. I don't want to spend all this time. We could, we could spend the entire morning just talking about all those different views of the millennium. But the, the key point that distinguishes them from one another is that they talk about the timing between the, the second coming of Christ and the reign of Christ. And the second coming, which was spoken of in chapter 19, and the, the reign of Christ, which is spoken of in chapter 20. The premillennial view sees the second coming as being pre or before the reign of Christ. And so it, it looks at chapter 19 and says, well, chapter 19 comes before chapter 20. So it takes this sort of a, the term that, that they would like to use on that view is to say, we're literal. We take it in a literal way, but better said, in a linear way. They, they would read the book of Revelation linearly and say, chapter 19, the second coming comes before chapter 20, the reign of Christ. And therefore, the millennium uh, is, uh, the, the second coming is pre. Post-millennial is the other view that, all right, I'm just going to use this one. The, um, the view there is that the second coming of Christ is after the reign of Christ. We've highlighted, Brian and I, that the book of Revelation is not a linear book, but a cyclical book. It, it sort of has cycles of saying the same thing from different perspectives over and over and over. And so it's not this, then this, then this, then this, then this, but rather it's a, a cyclical thought. And that the fact that chapter 20 comes after chapter 19 doesn't necessitate that these are historically one after the other. And so post-millennial see the second coming as being after a reign of Christ where Christ will return and find faith on the earth. And then amillennial also sees it as coming after, but the difference being ah meaning not. It's a poor name. It, it means not a millennium, which is not true at all of the view. The view would be better named uh, inaugurated millennialism, meaning that the millennial reign of Christ has been inaugurated, has started, it is already present, but it is not yet consummated, and it would see uh, the millennium as a figurative, a thousand years being a figurative view. We've noticed some things already, and you can maybe tell where I might fall on this, in that the book is cyclical, and it is also a book of signs or symbols. It is full of being signed out, to, to the, the things in it are not given literally, but they are signs of the truths that God is trying to communicate to us. And so 
a book of symbols, and a thousand is a very symbolic number, is it not? Ten times ten times ten. The, the perfect number of completion. And so the millennial or the inaugurated view would see that the reign of Christ is currently happening already on earth, but that it has not yet come to a consummation, a, a time of its finality. In this passage, we'll look first at the reign of Christ. That was the passage we read, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 20. And we see in here, right, what is signed to us? What is it that John sees? Uh, and, I, and I posit that he's seeing what is true now in what we would call the church age. From the time of the resurrection of Christ to the second coming of Christ, we are seeing what is happening during that time. He sees an angel coming down from heaven. There are many angels in the book of Revelation. We've come across them on almost every chapter. However, there's only several times where an angel in the book comes down from heaven. And John sees it. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. Sounds like Christ, wrapped in a cloud. The only person who's ever wrapped in clouds in the scriptures is God. The other occurrence is in chapter 18, verse 1. I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. In other words, the entire earth was lit up with his glory. Again, I think that an argument, a case can be made that both of those instances of an angel coming down from heaven was Christ. And so here we have another angel coming down from heaven. What is said of this angel? He sees something else about this angel. This angel has a key in his hand. Uh, again, that's not a new concept. Keys, we've seen keys before in the book of Revelation, haven't we? In chapter 1, verse 18, I have the keys of death and Hades. Right? Who's the I there? It's Christ. Christ holds the keys. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 7, the introduction to the church in Philadelphia describes him, uh, the Christ, as having the key of David. Again, a key in Revelation in the hand of Christ. And then chapter 9, verse 1, it specifically uses the exact same phrase of one having the key to the bottomless pit. And so I think these presence of this key, which is the idea of authority, the idea of authority. Uh, you may remember when Christ was with the disciples and he said that he would give them the keys of the kingdom so that whatever they bound on earth would be bound in heaven, whatever they loosed on earth would be loosed in heaven. And uh, we don't have time to get into that, but, but the keys that he gave them, an argument can be made that it's the preaching of the gospel. He gave them the authority to preach the gospel to the nations that it might release people from bondage to sin. He imparted that authority. When he commissioned them in the Great Commission, he said, he started it with saying, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. You go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. He was imparting to them an authority, an entrusted authority. And so I think a good argument can be made that 
This angel with the keys in his hand is Christ. Then John saw him take a dragon. And there's a fourfold description of this dragon. A dragon, the serpent of old, the devil, Satan. This fourfold name for Satan was used one other time in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 9. And in that chapter, it spoke of his being cast down to earth. It was when Satan was removed from the throne room and relegated to the earthly realms, to, to roam the earth, but he was removed out of heaven. John saw that this one had a great chain in his hand, and then he bound him. He was thrown into the pit, it was shut, and he was sealed. There's a lot of speculation about what this means. What, what does it mean that this enemy was bound? Was he rendered entirely um, powerless to do nothing? And if, if you think that that's what it says here, then it would make sense that that's not what we experience today, right? Uh, today we experience the reality that Satan is like a lion prowling. And, and so the conclusion of many is, well, this must be future then because Satan is still active. Thankfully, this passage, though, doesn't leave us to guess what is the meaning that this enemy is bound. It goes on to tell us what it means. It says that he might not deceive the nations. That he might not deceive the nations. He, he might try to deceive the nations, but he would not succeed to do so. I think we've got other scriptures here that really help us to understand. And, and what we're talking about here is our enemy, Satan. And two errors seem to present themselves in the church uh, all throughout history. One is to give too much credit to Satan. To, to give too much power to him. And the other is to not pay enough attention to him. To, to sort of say uh, that he is not a formidable foe. The reality is he is a formidable foe, but he is a defeated foe. For example, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he is described this way, that Satan, the god of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That, that he blinds and keeps people in darkness. However, to have a biblical view that's balanced, we should also remember other passages. For example, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, which speaking of the cross says that at the cross that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities of this world and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ, at the cross. And Hebrews 2.14 would go on to add to this, that through death, through Christ's death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. That word destroy, there's an interesting word. It means, it means to render something null and powerless. Satan is a formidable foe. He is indeed a, a, a roaring lion. He does seek whom he may devour, but he is a defeated foe. He is a defanged foe. He has a loud roar, but he has no bite when it comes to the people of God. 
We see two passages that describe this reality. One's a corporate application of this truth and one's a personal application of this truth. The corporate one was this. When Jesus was teaching, he was doing miracles. And in chapter 12 of the book of uh, Gospel of Matthew, he is challenged on why and, and what, how he's doing these miraculous things. And he, and he says this. He says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man? And then indeed he may plunder his house. In other words, Jesus' explanation for what he was doing in these um, miraculous acts that he was performing was that he was plundering the house of Satan. And interestingly, the word there, binds, is the exact same word used here in Revelation for bound. That he binds up. In other words, that even though he is a foe and a formidable foe, he will not thwart the work of Christ. And there's a corporate example there. But the personal one is Peter. You may remember when Peter was boldly saying what he would do and that he would stand and know when everyone else left Christ he would not and then in Luke 22 31 and 32 Jesus said this to Peter he says Simon Simon behold Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail in other words Satan asked to bind you, but I have bound Satan, and he will not succeed in that. I've prayed for you. And therefore, he says, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Isn't that a beautiful story of what Peter did? After Peter realized that apart from the work of Christ for him, binding the evil one and, and rescuing him from what would have been a certain disaster and destruction for him apart from the grace of Christ in his life, he turns around and he does what? He writes two letters to the church to encourage them not to do what he did when he faced hardship, which was to, to desert and deny Christ, but to stand firm. Satan no longer has the power to hold God's people in bondage. That's what occurred at the very beginning of Christ's ministry. He was declaring, uh, quoting out of Isaiah, that he had been sent to proclaim liberty to the captives. And Satan would not prevail over that. And this is going on for when? For a thousand years. This is what is happening today. From the resurrection of Christ to the reign and the second coming of Christ, he is reigning in this manner, that he is building his church and even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's, it's not a question of whether or not Christ will successfully uh, build his church on earth. He will. How do you know that? Because the enemy has been bound. The strong man has been bound. And Christ will plunder his house. And he will gather all of God's children. That's the picture being given here. The second thing we see is the blessing of the first resurrection. We ask sometimes a question, what happens to those who pass before us? What happens to saints, those who love the Lord, who die before Christ returns. What happens to them? And there's a view out there that um, is sort of 
a popular thing. It's, it's called soul sleep. And the idea is that God has some sort of a spiritual cryogenics program where people are sort of frozen in a state until a future day when they sort of open up all the freezers and everybody comes out in, in the resurrection. But that's not what Scripture says. What, what happens then? If it's not the final consummation of God's kingdom, what, what happens to people who die in the Lord before Christ's return? It's a great question. Verses 4 through 6 answer that for us. They tell us three things about them. They come to life. In other words, they're not in some state of sleep. They are alive. More alive than they were probably ever on earth. Right? And they reign with Christ. They reign with Christ alongside him. And then it says that they are priests of God. An interesting phrase. Because why does God need priests? A priest was an intercessory between. The priest served between God and the people. They were sort of a picture of what Christ would do as a mediator in relationship. They served and they spoke to God on behalf of the people and to the people on behalf of God. And God doesn't need that. So why would they be priests? In what sense would they be priests? Well, I believe it's this, that they are serving alongside Christ in his priestly role. They reign with him in his kingly role, and they serve with him as priests in his priestly role. Do you know what Christ is doing today? Do you know what Christ is doing today? It tells us what Christ is doing today in Hebrews 7, 25. He is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him because... He always lives to make intercession for them. Christ today is reigning in heaven and he is interceding. He's praying for us. And those who have gone before us are reigning with him and they are also what? Praying. Interceding. For us. There's a sense where there's what we call an intermediate reign. Not a consummate reign. It's not the final. And so... John says here, this is the first resurrection, not the second resurrection, not the final resurrection. This is the first resurrection, a real resurrection. They came to life and they reigned and they're with Christ and they're interceding with him, but it's not the final resurrection. He gives an answer to well, what happens to those who pass before us. Then he goes on and he speaks in verses 7 through 10 about the defeat of Satan, the defeat of our enemy. And remember we said cyclical. And so this is the battle. I'm not going to go into this much. I'm only going to make one point out of these verses. And it's this interesting phrase where it speaks about how they come up, the enemies of God, God's people, come up and they surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Isn't that an interesting phrase? The camp of the saints. It's not a common phrase. It's not a, a typical designation for the people of God. Why, why use that phrase? Why not use some other phrase? I, I think it has to do with this. The camp was the idea of when the people of God were in the wilderness. And that's where we are today. In a sense, this is a wilderness experience for the church of Christ on earth. We, we are not yet in the consummate kingdom. Right? And so it's a reminder that that the church will be attacked and persecuted here on earth, right? It will. And enemies will rise up against it. But only for a little while is the comforting word here. 
only for a little while. Let me read the next section. I want to make sure we get into this because this is the much funner part of this passage. Beginning in chapter 21, verse 1. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, adulterers, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We come here to a passage that speaks about a new place and a new people. The, the, the passage we looked at already is about what's happening now on earth between the resurrection and the return of Christ. This passage talks about what will happen then, after the return of Christ. And it describes a new place and a new people. We're not going to talk about the people today. The people here are the bride and the new Jerusalem. And Brian is going to speak about that next Sunday. It's almost like John introduces these two ideas and says, let me talk about the place first. And I'll come back. And so next Sunday, we'll dive into the bride of Christ and the new Jerusalem. But he talks about this new place and describes it. What would you change about this world if you could you could just snap your fingers and something was to change here what would you change you know that's sort of the common question that people get asked you know and and, and the answer like world peace or or no hunger or no sickness and the, and those are the things that we might ask for the the areas where this world and its life uh, and what we experience are broken However, this passage, I think, goes deeper than just fixing those things. I had a railing on a house we lived in once. It was a white iron railing. It had rusted out. I needed to paint it. I don't like painting railings. It's messy. It, it, you're not using a paint that cleans up. I tend to wear more of it than put it on the, the thing I'm painting. And so I just decided to just paint over it and be done with it. Well, you know what happened in a couple of weeks, it just sort of bled through because it never dealt with the root issue, which was the rust on the rail. What are the root problems in our world that we would want to change if you could? 
I think to understand what is being seen here by John, you have to go all the way back to the beginning where it broke. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden where God commanded our first parents not to eat of the tree in the garden, of everything else they could but not that, and they ate. And then there were consequences. And do you remember what the consequences were? I mean, eventually the consequences were all of the things we see today in us that are broken. But there were really the consequences boiled down to a couple of broad root things. One was they lost the presence of God. They were no longer permitted to live in the garden and be with God. They were separated from God. They were cast out of his presence. And the second issue was everything in the creation that God had blessed them with would now begin to die and decay. Everything. This passage addresses those two issues. And it's keyed for us with the same word, behold. Twice in this passage it says, behold this, and then behold this. I've said it before, that word behold is really important in the scriptures. It means that you're about to read or hear something that is probably not going to be what you're willing to accept when you hear it. For any number of reasons. Because of our sinfulness. Because in this case, it sounds too good to be true. Um, Because we are wired to think differently. Behold is sort of a pay attention here because... This is important, but this isn't probably what you would go to right away if you were thinking about this. If we were thinking about what the fix in this world, these would probably not be the two answers we give. Behold, the first one occurs in verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. In other words, God's presence is restored. That which was lost in the garden is restored. He will dwell with them. It's a beautiful word. It's uh, the word tabernacled, the tent of meeting in the wilderness. God will tabernacle with them. You know, if you really want to get close to someone and be with them, go camping, right? I mean, that's maybe the reason we don't want to go camping. Is It's like, I don't want to be trapped in a small confined place or tent with these people for the whole weekend. God came and he tabernacled with us, dwelt with us. John chapter 1 verse 14 says he came, he became flesh and uses that exact word and tabernacled with us. Why did he do that? Because he sought a relationship with us. Three times it says that he desired to be with them. Three times in these verses, to be with them, to be with them, to be with them. I think that is partly the behold part, because I think a lot of us struggle with the idea that God wants to actually be with us. Why would he want to be with me? Why would the God of the universe, the creator of all things, want to be with miserable, sinful me? But three times here it says, that God came to dwell with them, that he might be with them, that he wanted to be with them, that he might have them with him. That's why God did this. And that's what's true of the place that he's preparing. And then, and only then, are all these things said that are resulting from that. 
What is the result of when God dwells with his people? He wipes away every tear. He desires to be with us, to be compassionate to us, that there is no more death. He he desires to be with us that we might know life and not know death. He desires that there be no more mourning. And that word means not to, it means to um, have sadness or grief, sorrows, regret, right? Mourning over our past that we can't change. It's not just the funeral kind of mourning, but it's even beyond that. We, we mourn the days and the errors and the things we've done wrong that we can't fix. And he longs that there be no more crying. And this doesn't mean tearful crying. It's not the same idea as he'll wipe away every tear. That's the idea of crying, of sorrow. This is he will wipe away every uh, desire they have to cry out. You ever had that desire just to go in a room and scream? At the top of your lungs? Maybe you've done it. Get in your car and just let out a big scream. That's what this is speaking about. There'll be no more of that inner turmoil that just makes you want to yell out against whatever. And there's no more pain, no more anguish, no more suffering. The reality here is this. The presence of God changes everything. The presence of God changes everything. I love what the book of Isaiah says in chapter 64, verses 1 through 3. This should be a prayer that we pray often. Listen to these words and pay attention to the concept of how uh, he yearned for God's presence. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. This this yearning for the presence of God to invade this world. And then the second behold is the one that addresses the problem of decay and death. Behold, I am making all things new. Behold, I'm making all things new. You know, everything breaks. Houses break, cars break, yards break, bodies break. Not only material things, immaterial things break. Plans fall apart, relationships break, emotions break. Everything breaks and falls apart and decays and dies. He says, I am making all things new. It's a fascinating passage. We don't have a lot of time here, but he he makes these follow-ups. He says, this is going to be the case because these words are trustworthy and true, because it is done and I am the Alpha and Omega. And then he talks about thirst. What is going on here? It's interesting. Trustworthy and true, faithful and true. That's the title that was given to Christ earlier on in the book of Revelation. The faithful and true witness. And then uh, it is done. It it has become. It's already been and it's come to pass. And then the reference to thirst. When you think of thirst and water in the scriptures, our mind tends to go to the Spirit of God. Remember Jesus said, that wells of living water would spring up within God's people. And it says, and he was speaking of the Spirit. 
I wonder if these phrases, the faithful and true Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, the Father, if the thirst-quenching work of the Spirit isn't sort of a, an allusion here to the way that God is going to be doing this is through His work as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That He will work to restore all things. And that we're called to, uh, to, to believe that. It's an interesting shift. We don't have time to go into it, but you may notice that the beginning part of this section, it speaks about... Um, the, a heard a loud voice from the throne, and he, he. But here in this section, it says, and I heard the voice of him on the throne. And it goes to first person, I, I, I. It's almost as if the first section of the behold is about Christ from the throne. The second section is the Father, I. And he says this is all free without payment. What do we have to do? for this. What, what is our part in fixing the brokenness of this world? We can't. I think it's to come to Christ, to come as thirsty people and admit that thirst and, and to drink from Christ. Remember Christ said that he who drinks of him would neither thirst nor hunger again to the woman at the well? We live in the in-between. This passage, I think, if you got one takeaway from here, it would be this. To understand where we live now, but also to understand what God has promised that he will do. We live in the in-between. Hebrews 2.8 says this. It says at the present, it, it says God is subject everything to the feet of Christ, but at the present, we don't see everything in subjection to him. But it is. And so it's written to encourage us in the now, and it's written to strengthen us in our hope and our anticipation of what will be then. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your grace that intervened. What we see in this passage is that, that all that has been broken by sin is restored by you. And, and not because we've worked hard to do it or earned it, but without payment, freely. That you didn't do it for cause. Father, we pray for your presence. We pray that you would rend the heavens, so to speak, and that you might come down, that your presence would dwell uh, in our church, in our families, in our lives, in our nation. Father, that your presence would overcome your and our adversaries. And Father, that your presence would care for your people. That we would experience your compassion and your delight. That we might know with your presence that it's because you long for reasons we will never understand to be with us. Father, we should long to be with you, though we don't. And there's nothing in us that should make you long to be with us, but you do. Father, that you would um, make us a people that as we worship you and as we live for you, people might say that you are with us and be drawn to that. That they might 
see our lives and our words, and that might long to come and to know the God who is with us. Father, we ask that you would do these things for our good, for your glory, and for the nations, that they may come to know Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.